Have you ever asked yourself, or stated, I guess, this phrase? I wish I'd known then what I know now. I wish I had known then what I know now. And, and how would you fill in that blank? Like, I wish I had known in college what I know now, that no one ever looks at your GPA once you graduate. <laughs> Normally. I know. I, I let the cat out of the bag on that one. Stay consistent. Of course, I will say this one for those of you still in high school. I wish I'd know then, in high school, what I know now. And that is your financial aid is based on your grades beginning as freshmen. They really should have a course on that one. I wish I'd known before I had kids what I know now. That you can't as easily get away for a weekend. Okay, I wish I had known before I bought the car what I know now, that you can Google a lemon list online. I wish I had known before I got the job what I know now, and that is a work environment as important as a pay raise. I wish I had known then what I know now. I wish I had known when I had kids what I know now, that the days go by slow, but the years go by fast, and you have empty homes. I wish I'd known then what I know now. And see, you guys did a great job sharing openly on it. Do I have a couple, three others that could give me an example of I wish I'd known blank what I know now and fill it in. Anybody? See, I had to pause and think myself this week. What is it that you wish you'd known back then that you know now? I wish I had known then what I know now. What about on the other side of this life? What if we could have Howard Vachey come back in physical bodily form this morning, right? Howard passed away here, Diane's husband, just a few weeks ago. What would Howard say? He would stand in front of us and he'd say, hey, listen, let me tell you about something. I wish I'd known when I was here on this earth walking with you guys what I know now. That the glory of God far surpasses anything you long for in this life. I wish I'd known then what I know now. I want to help save you some regrets today. I want to help you refocus some of the trajectory as we begin to step into the fall season. And, and I want to lead off by reading a story that's a little bit of a take-you-back kind of story that Jesus told. It's not my story. It's Jesus' story. And this story comes out of Luke 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple, Jesus said, with fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. Now, this isn't the Lazarus that was raised from the dead. This is Lazarus who was a beggar in the story. Covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. 
Even the dogs came and licked Lazarus' sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell, where he, the rich man, was in torment. He looked up, and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, Send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to him. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, If you do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. I find that striking because Jesus himself spoke the words, right? And Jesus is recorded in Scripture as having died and been raised from the dead. And he knew what was before him. He said, even if a dead man talks to people, people will not believe. Why? Because a lot of times we become very myopic. We are born into this world. We were born to live. We were given this life. This is a life full and rich that God provides for us and has purpose and meaning in it. And you're on the journey to be able to pursue and discover that purpose and that meaning of who God made you to be fully alive as a human being. And fully alive, we say here at this church, is to be fully alive in Christ. But here was a man, an example in this story of someone, uh, a rich man. There's nothing wrong with riches. God provides riches and, and we use them for his glory. But here was a rich man who seemingly was indifferent from the rest of life. And so he consumed his whole life with the temporal, the here and now, as he could physically define it. But then on the other side, he for some reason, and of course this isn't necessarily, it's a parable, so you can't pull direct theology from every point that's in a parable. It's like, how did this rich man who didn't go to heaven able to look into heaven and see this poor man who had sores that was licked by dogs and had nothing? How was he able to see him across this chasm? I don't know, but somehow Jesus paints this picture. And I think he paints this picture to be able to get us to focus on that statement, I wish I'd known then what I know now. What would the rich man say if he had to fill in that statement? I wish I'd known then that you can't take any riches with you when you pass from one life to the next. I wish I had known then that those who are poor in the earthly world will be endeared to God if they're followers of Him in the end. I, I know that a lot of times it's hard for us to talk about the divide on the other side of this life. And, 
and that's sort of typical. Oh, in church, you always want to talk about the afterlife. We're going to talk about heaven and hell, those kinds of things. And, and it's really not that so much that I want us not to live a life with regrets. And to do that, we have to come front and center with the truth that this life is not all that there is. This life is merely the beginning of an eternity. But this life determines what happens through that eternity. And this life, we need to rightfully take stock every week, if not every morning when we get up, going, wow, okay, am I pursuing the right things? Am I holding the right things, uh, you know, as priorities in my life? And then alter our life according to that reality, all right? I wish I'd known then what I know now. Man, I tell you what, when I'm on the other side, and I believe I'll be on the other side with the Lord, I'm still fearful that I'll think to myself, man, I wish I had known then. When I had the opportunity to encourage my friends and my family members what I know now, and that is that Jesus is real, and that Jesus does forgive, and that Jesus does want us in a relationship with him. I wish I had known then. Uh, when I was just living from week to week what I know now, and that is that every day, every week, every hour, in one sense, it's really important not to put pressure on me or to put pressure on you, but let's seize the day. I believe one of the things I know it was true in my life that has kept me from seizing the day and not living a life with regrets or into an eternity with some regrets has to do with my confidence in me having a relationship with God and that me and Jesus are like this. Some of you have crossed over a decision line in your life where you say, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus Christ, and I want Jesus Christ to be the leader of my life. And you have made a decision in your life to ask for the forgiveness of your sins, to let him not only forgive your sins but give you a trajectory and a hope and a future as Scripture tells, and you've made that decision. Others of you are maybe contemplating that decision, and you're trying to wrestle, you know, is it really all it's cracked up to be, and it scares me a little bit, whatever it may be. But for those of us sometimes who have crossed that line of salvation, one of Satan's antics, his tactics, is to keep our relationship status with Jesus in question. You know what I'm saying? And so he comes to you, that's still buzzing in your head or something happens in life, and goes, see, that's who you really are. Who could ever love you? Or you're not a Christian. Who do you think you are? If you were to die, how do you really know that there is a heaven anyway? So why worry about, you know, living a life for God? Live it for yourself. See, he's called the accuser, and he's accused all the way back into the Garden of Eden. Are you really sure that God said don't eat of that tree for a reason? He's an accuser, and he'll continue to accuse us day in and day out as followers of Christ, saying you should not have confidence or you should not have assurance of your salvation, and you should not have assurance that you and Jesus are like that. And so we end up determining how we're relating to God through His Son, Jesus Christ, based upon not what He has done and who He is, but upon 
how we're performing and how we're doing. I talked with my mom this past week, and she said she had some uh, friends stop by her house, and somehow they ended up uh, conversing about eternal things. Just briefly, she said. And she said, I could tell from these individuals, and they had been church-going people, that they didn't have confidence in their life as they were getting older. And their confidence was reflected in the statement, well, I guess we'll find out then on the other side if we made it. And she was disappointed because she thrives in that joy of knowing that soon she will not only go to be able to see the Lord in her aging years, but that she will be able to see others who love God. And she lives with that confidence and that hope and that joy. But here she was, broken in spirit in part, because she says, well, how do you go church your whole life and not know for sure if you're going to go to heaven or if, you're, if you have a real relationship with God and have confidence in that? And my only answer to it is maybe the pastor doesn't take moments like this to exhort us is the assurance of your salvation and the confidence of your status with Jesus being a detriment to what you are doing in life, in particular what you're able to do for God now, because the adversary will want you to have doubt. I had it in my life for a number of years. I remember I'd watch Billy Graham on television, and I'd say to myself as a young man, I bet he knows for sure. Of course, a Billy Graham who's, you know, preached around the world. I know he's aging now. A lot of people maybe don't know who Billy Graham is, but Billy Graham, powerful, powerful life. And he'd call people to salvation for people to come and give their life to Jesus and to be able to have not only the hope of heaven, but to have a, a full life, fully alive today. He'd spend his whole life, and I'd watch him, and I'd go, wow, he really knows that he's going to heaven. Gordo, did you guys go to Anaheim yesterday? No. How was that? <coughs> Stadium full. Yeah, Tell them what it was. What? Tell them what it was. Greg Laurie's Harvest Crusade, Anaheim, Stadium full. People were invited to come receive Christ, right? Yeah. That's moving. I'd sit and I'd watch Billy Graham do those kind of crusades on TV and I'd say to myself, I wish, I wish I knew. Thing was, I had already watched Billy Graham. I'd seen people come forward and even as a young boy, I'd gone upstairs and prayed in my bed, Jesus, come into my life. I don't want to wake up and see my family gone some morning, right? And I've been left behind. But I struggled with the assurance of my salvation for a number of years and I now... I wish, I wish I had known then, when I was a young man struggling with the assurance of my salvation, what I know now. And that is that my salvation is not dependent upon my feelings. But the adversary is causing some of you who are followers of Jesus Christ to, to doubt where you're at. And so that's why you just you don't even you know offer up much uh, service to God because you're thinking I don't want to be a hypocrite or are these guys and you're like wait a second wait a second wait a second who God sees you to be He sees your messes and your junk 
and your sins and your brokenness and your double-mindedness and your wayward mind. He sees you so thoroughly that it's laughable to think that we're thinking we're hiding something from him. He knows who we are. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, though. And he chose to reach out to us in our brokenness. And if you're a broken person here this morning and, and your life was sort of defined as one of those messy kind and, and you've you know, maybe not understood what God's done for you, I want you to know that God, through his son, Jesus Christ, and the spirit who's even here in this room, as promised, looks at you with a smile and says, I've died for you and I want you to know not only that your sins can be forgiven, but that you can stand in tight perfect status with me every day. But we go from day to day and we wrestle and we're challenged and we struggle with all kinds of things. And sometimes we just need to bring it out of the closet into the light and say, do you struggle with confidence of knowing that you're really saved? So what I'd like to do is I would like to say a few statements on the heels of a verse that really bugged me. And then I want to give some affirmation to how you have assurance. This verse is the verse that bugged me when I was younger. It's Mark 8:38. Jesus is talking with the disciples. This is when Peter sort of proclaims, hey, you are the Christ, you know. And I'm like, great, I'm glad you figured that one out and those kinds of things. And he comes back and he says this. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. I was concerned that God would be ashamed of me. Now, one of the reasons is because I didn't know that I was that confident in declaring my allegiance to Jesus with others. It was sort of a private matter, you know. But I wrestled with this and I was scared because I knew if I was to pass from this life to the next, I mean, I didn't want to be that rich man. I wanted to I wanted to be where that Lazarus guy was. I wanted to be in the presence of God. But here was Jesus himself, and this was no parable. He's just teaching it straight on, just like he would teach it straight on if he was physically here. He says, if anyone is ashamed of me in this world, I will be ashamed of him. I will not acknowledge them in the life to come. Jesus, he held back no punches. He was straight on in how he described reality. He knew he was coming back in full glory someday with his holy angels. And with him would be those who were his followers by choice. Now, if you're to look at this whole aspect of assurance of salvation i just want to say a few statements the first is this it is possible for you to have the hope and the assurance of salvation you don't have to be wishy-washy i don't know i don't think i went to church enough times i don't think i did enough good things i, I didn't teach kids how to eat their vegetables right you know you're, you're you're trying to you're trying to weigh the good against the bad and you're sort of seeing the scales aren't quite working there like you want to your advantage because that's uh, that's a religion of works and we're not talking about a religion today we're talking about a relationship jesus got tired of the religion talk he says i've come that you may have life and have it to the full i want this relationship thing and so you know maybe you're in that quandary of sort of weighing it back and forth i want you to know you can have 
true hope and true assurance. And even after, after my great talk today doesn't do it for you, I want you to know that next week and the week after that and the week after that. It is possible. When I watch a Billy Graham now, if I had gone to the Greg Lowry crusade and been in prayer and encouraged by seeing those who are committing their lives to Christ, I would have said to myself, man, great to have you on board with the family. I'm there with you. I have hope and I have the assurance of my salvation today. So it is possible to have the hope and the assurance of your salvation, but also it is possible for one who believes that they have eternal life to be deceived. Huh? It's another one of these sobering statements of Jesus. Matthew 7, 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name drive out demons and perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. What's going on here? That means that you can have what I refer to as a bunch of religiosity, but not have genuinely surrendered to being a Christ follower and trusting in what Jesus did for your salvation. You can have all kinds of stars from Sunday school if you went when you were a little kid as to attendance and other kind. But it doesn't mean anything. Your parents could have been the greatest saints, the most fired up people for Jesus Christ, but just because you were born into that home doesn't mean anything. You could have gone to a Christian school. You could have, you know, masqueraded in all kinds of ways, and you could have probably even deceived yourself. It is possible for you to have the hope and assurance of your salvation, but it is possible for those who think they have that assurance to be deceived. And that's a very sobering statement for us to take stock of when we look at it. The third thing I'd like to say here, though, is that it's also possible and normal for a believer to have doubts about eternal life. So if you're in that camp today and go, I hear you, I wish I was where you're at, but I really have doubts. I want you to know that that's normal. There's nothing wrong with that. You're not being berated today like, how dare you doubt what Jesus has done. We're human beings. We're broken individuals, even after Christ comes into our life. And so there's reason sometimes for us to consider some of the doubts. A guy by the name of Donald Whitney, he lists several important things to understand about the type of doubt that comes to us. And I just want to list off some of these from him. Doubting assurance is not the same as experiencing unbelief. A person can have a strong, vibrant faith in Jesus Christ while still feeling the level of doubt. We must not make doubt and unbelief synonymous terms. Lest a person feel that his brief periods of doubt indicate serious unbelief in his heart. Unbelief presupposes a denial of many important points of doctrine. Doubt is mere uncertainty about such doctrinal points. He says this second, there are many causes of doubt. We can doubt because of the attacks of Satan, because of the trials of difficult circumstances, because of sin in our lives, or even a mental or physical condition. Doubt is not necessarily brought about by overwhelming sin in our lives. And I give in reference to you with that, with the adversary. There's all kinds of reasons that we may doubt. Another one, spiritual immaturity may contribute to doubt. With greater maturity comes a greater understanding of God and our position before him through Jesus' atoning death. Thus, we would generally expect doubts to decrease as a person grows in spiritual maturity. Another one, sensitivity to sin may cause confusion about assurance. This is true. 
The more you walk in the light, the more you realize you've been walking in darkness. Believers through their reborn hearts are blessed with a greater sensitivity to sin. This heightened understanding of the gravity of sin may lead Christians and perhaps young Christians in particular to doubt. Yet it should be noted that this increased understanding of sin is actually, it's actually a mark of the Spirit's work within a person's heart. You're now aware. Another one, comparisons with other believers may cloud assurance. Comparing oneself to other believers may emphasize the immaturity of a person's faith. We must understand that people mature only with great effort and over a great amount of time. It is often unrealistic to compare oneself with a believer who is far more mature. And then the last one that he mentions. Childhood conversion may affect assurance. A person who was converted as a child may feel that he was deceived when he made the decision He may feel that his decision is somehow less meaningful because Christianity is all that he's ever known. That was part of my situation. As a young child, I come to know Christ, but then it's like, well, wait, did I really cross from death to life? I never really experienced it. So there's all kinds of reasons for doubt. Doubt is normal, so don't be bothered and hung up or beat yourself up about doubt. That's not what I'm here to do today. What I'm here to do, though, is to position you on solid ground if you are a Christian, and also if you're not a Christian, to encourage you to consider what it means to know Christ and where your confidence can come from to move forward in this world and have the hope of eternal life. And so I want us to look at um, three... um, Pillars, if you will, three aspects, basis for the Christian's assurance. All right? You cannot depend upon yourself for the assurance of salvation and the hope of eternal life. Okay? You must rest on these three. Number one is this. Assurance rests on the character of God himself. Assurance rests on the character of God himself. 2 Timothy 1.12. We're going to be walking through some verses here, but this is pretty critical. I mean, you don't need to hear from me. You need to hear from God's word, right? So assurance rests on the character of God himself. And it says this in 2 Timothy 1.12. I know whom I have believed. This is Paul talking. And I am convinced that he, referencing God, is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So here's Paul. He is confident that he is a follower of Christ. He is confident of eternal life. And he says straight up, I know in whom I believed and I am convinced that I am the one. No, it doesn't say that. That he is able to guard against that day. That day is referring to the final day. He's looking into the future. I wish I'd known then what I know now. So he's looking forward and he's saying, hey, I know now what I will know then still. And that is that it's not about me. It's about him and what he has entrusted to me. He has entrusted this salvation. John 6, verse 37 says this. It's Jesus. 637 says this, however, those the Father has given me will come to me. So Jesus is teaching his disciples. And they will never reject them, and I will never reject them. For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. And this is the will of God, that I should not lose even one of those he has given me but that I should raise them up at the last day. 
For it is my Father's will that all who see his Son and believe in him should have eternal life. I will raise them up on the last day. The character of God, the character of Jesus Christ, is not dependent upon you. It's dependent upon his character, and his character is good. You can trust him. You can trust him. Now, all of us know different kind of characters in our life. And some you trust and some you don't. Some at your work environment, you trust them, some you don't. Right? There's what, 20 people running for president of the United States right now. Right? And you're evaluating character. Can I trust them? Can I not trust them? Right? Well, I want you to know when you pull out and you stand before God and his son, Jesus Christ, you can trust him. And if you can't trust them, then they wouldn't be God. Because the God that you can imagine is someone who we could trust absolutely with if integrity. And if that's what Jesus says is true of his will, of doing the will of the Father, then he will keep you until that day. And he will protect you. And no one that follows him will be rejected. The second pillar is this. Not only does assurance rest on the character of God himself, but assurance rests on the promises of God's word. Assurance rests on the promises of God's word. And I just want to list a few for you, a few of them for you here. They're not on your overhead. Acts 16.31. Just listen to these words. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. John 3.16. Actually, we could say this one together. You ready? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 1 John 2.25, and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. John 5.24, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but is passed from death to life. And Acts 2.21, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You can go throughout the scriptures and time and time again, these promises. And so when it comes to the doubt of your salvation or the doubt of eternal life or all the confusion that goes on, you go to the book, you read these words and you say to the Lord with open palms, is this your word? Is this true or not? And God will look at you and say, wait, what do you think? I am a liar. No, those are my promises. And I stay true to my promises. And so the assurance comes from the character of God himself, and the assurance rests upon the promises of God's word. First John, this is the passage, if you will, that I rest on time and time again concerning the assurance of my salvation. First John 5.11 says this, And this is the testimony of God. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now, that's sort of a little bit of preamble to the key verse here that's coming in 13. But that is telling us this is how we can know how God operates. But then it says this in verse 15. I write these things to you. Who's writing this? The, the disciple John's writing them. It's in his gospel, right? Or it's in his letter that he's written. And he's writing this letter to Christians. He says, I write these things to you who believe. In the name of the Son of God, so that you may, what? Know that you have eternal life. It is possible for you to have the hope and the assurance of your salvation and not put your head on the pillow at night and wonder, if I die before I wake, where I would be. You may know this 
John understood that. He speaks to the Christians he's writing to. He's been, you know, you know, telling them the promises of God about salvation again. You know, he has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son does not have life. And he says, these things I've written to you that you may know that you have eternal life. So if you're working with a friend of yours concerning if they have confidence of what would happen on the other side of this life, and they sort of hem-haw around, and they say, oh, I don't know, I... I think he'll give me the nod, you know. It's, uh, I've tried to be pretty good in my life. And, and they may think the good things outweigh the bad things. And that's just sort of how we're wired. And, and uh, you can just look at them and say, hey, did you know that you can know that you have eternal life? There doesn't need to be double-mindedness or doubt or indifference. Or some, you know, hope in a lottery pick that'll get you in. You can know. And you need to carry this. And if I can just exhort you in this with your friends and your family members who maybe don't know God, you need to encourage them that they can get out of the religion game and they can get into the relationship game. And in the relationship game, you know if you're walking with Christ or not and you have that hope of eternal life. But again... That's a promise in his word that we pull out from First John. Three pillars. Assurance rests on the character of God himself. Assurance rests on the promises of God's word. And thirdly, I want to say this. Assurance rests on the completed work of Jesus Christ. Do you remember what Jesus said? Very last words before he died on the cross. Arms hung out and he said what? It is finished. It is finished. You know, what's, what's finished, Jesus? I mean, that was a nasty deal you just went through. What's finished? His focus was on the will of the Father and the reason that he came to this earth. First Timothy 1.15 says this. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. And Paul says, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Jesus, Christ Jesus, might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. That was the work that he finished. And what he did on the cross, being a perfect person, dying for the forgiveness of our sins and being raised to the power of the resurrection, he defeated the devil and all the darkness that looms over humanity because he was a fully righteous man. Satan has no hands on him, to have no hands on him. He broke the power of death by being raised from the grave and he provided amazingly in that work the provision for you and I to have our sins forgiven and for us to have a relationship with him. You know, as a week ago, Tuesday, I think, this room there, were, I don't know, there was a bunch of round tables. It was probably filled with about 35 uh, young men and women. And um, they were uh, being instructed and interacting on this whole subject. Uh, Steve Riley over here is, works with our district as leader. He oversees what's called the licensing and ordination process for young pastors for people some of many years older that were becoming pastors to be ordained of the christian missionary alliance and the whole oh, the whole day man i was sitting in the back and sort of run the slides i was thinking man this is a neat group how many people get in a room and talk about what we were talking about that day around those tables 
and we walked through four things. We talked about the lostness of man. Is it true that without Christ in your life, you are lost, that you are part of that rich man and that story we started with? Do we really believe that people are lost without God? And that's pretty important to know as a pastor. All right? We're not just playing the church deal. And then you move from there to the atonement. And the atonement is this work, this finished, this completed work of Christ. Is what Jesus did and what did he do and what does all that mean? Does that make any difference? So we then talked about the atonement. Big word, right? And then we moved uh, to the word uh, justification. How do we stand justified before a holy God in light of the atonement because we're lost people? And then, then the fourth big word was the word regeneration. How when God comes into your life, something changes. You're spiritually flatlined and you wake up when the Holy Spirit comes into your life. And so this is important for us to talk about, not just as pastors, if you will. Lostness, atonement, justification, regeneration. Those are big words. I'm like, really? I didn't come in for a class today, Carrie. Well, I'd let you know this, that the more you understand the theology of the finished work of Jesus that hung on that cross and was raised from the dead, the more confidence you will have to be moving forward in life and making a difference for the kingdom. Because your assurance is not based on how you feel. It's based upon the character of God, the promises of his word, and the completed work of Jesus Christ. Dig in. Learn. Wrestle with things. Don't live on a surface level. It's okay, Carrie. I can't comprehend. It's hard for me to even read and stay constant. Try it. Try it. Because Satan wants to keep you hindered from moving forward in a powerful way. So, how then? How then can I have the assurance and know that I am truly one who has eternal life? I move to these verses. How do I know? I like this picture, by the way. I don't know if it's been helpful to you or not, but I just see it so clearly between death and life, between lostness and between the hope. How can I gain eternal life? And maybe you're at a place today where you're not one of those who made a decision to cross the line of faith, and you're saying, okay, how do I know? I didn't like that story you let off with, Carrie. That Lazarus and the rich guy thing? That statement you said about Jesus? If you're ashamed of me and my life in this world? Maybe you're sitting here with that question. How then can I gain eternal life? Well, look at these verses. It says this. It says this in First, Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians five twenty one says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That truth right there is what you're longing and hoping for, to have eternal life. It's not your righteousness or your goodness, but the righteousness of God to come into your life. And God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So our assurance rests upon the salvation. So then we step into the next encouragement. 
Romans 5, 8 said, but God demonstrated his own love for us. And while we we're still sinners, Christ died for us. But then a few verses later, Paul says in Romans, these powerful words, simple words, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It doesn't say you might be, or I think about it. You will be saved. You confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. What this means, it's not just a cognitive belief. A lot of people, even you know, even the, the devils believe that Jesus is the Lord. But the belief here is a personal ownership. I now believe into this, not just in this. And when I believe into it, I'm placing my faith and my trust in it. And so I'm confessing with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. I'm believing in my heart, the very essence of my being, that he was raised from the dead. And that finished work applies to me, that the righteousness of God that comes from Jesus can now come into my life. I'm believing in this. Verse 10. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, Anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Amen? We're going to do something this morning. It's not often done in this church. We're going to give you an opportunity to publicly declare Jesus as your Lord if you've never had that opportunity before. What happened to me is I went to one of these big crusades. It was a guy, I was a singer, and um, there was a speaker there. The singer was Dallas Holm, and the speaker was David Wilkerson. Some of you oldies know those two names, maybe. It was in a town in Alexandria, Indiana, I went with another church's youth group. I was still bugged by that thing. If you deny me before others, I'll deny you before the Father in heaven. I knew that Jesus, I had invited him into my life, but there was something about not publicly declaring it that I needed to have happen. And when that concert and that speaker finished out, they gave an invitation to come forward to declare that Jesus is Lord. I'm going to give you that opportunity. Part of the reason I'm going to give it is because many of you have known Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but we don't have altar calls in churches today like we used to sometimes in the olden days. What's an altar call? Well, there would be an altar where you could pray up front and they would finish the service out. They would have a hymn song. It was just like what happened at the Anaheim Stadium last night. And during that song, you could come and you could commit your life to Jesus Christ. I was worried. I was looking to the left and right. I didn't know all these kids, but I knew enough of them. They'd go, really? What's Kerry getting up for now and going down to the front? Has he not been saved this whole time? But God so broke on my heart that it didn't matter what other people think that I had to get through this doubt that was in my mind. And I had to make a public declaration of my faith in Jesus. And so I got up and I went forward in this large gymnasium. And they had a prayer for us afterwards. And then they gave us this book. I remember taking that book home. And I'd laid on my bed a lot of different nights wrestling 
with the assurance of my salvation that I would know that I had eternal life. And I remember taking that book and they had had it where you'd wrote in there and I wrote and I'd sign my name and I'd put the date down. And then when I was in my room, I wrote a note and I said, Satan, if you ever cause me to doubt my salvation again, this day with this group in this place, I committed my life to Christ. And there was something powerful about that. And so I'm going to ask the band to come up, and we're going to sing a song in closing. I know there's not a lot of room here, and and if you're a believer, you don't need to come forward. But if you're wrestling with the assurance of your salvation, and you've never made a public declaration of your faith, we have baptism for that, and I encourage you to be baptized. It's a public declaration of your faith. But maybe here in just a simple moment today, that you would come forward during this song. And we're all going to stand, but just make your way out through an aisle and come and stand here and we'll finish singing this song. When we finish singing this song, I want to have a prayer for you. Before I have that prayer, though, I'm going to have you confess with your mouth if Jesus is Lord. And I'm going to have you declare if you believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead. The scripture teaches that if we do that with sincerity, not based upon what we have done, but based upon what he has done, based upon the character of God, his promised word and the finished work of Calvary, that you may know before you walk out of this building this morning that you are a believer of Christ. And if for some tragic thing you pass from this life to the next, that you would be in the camp of that Lazarus rather than the camp of the rich man, wishing that he'd known then what he knew now. So sing this song. Sing it with a full heart to worship God. It's Jesus Messiah. If you've never crossed that line of faith, today could be your day. You can do the private prayer and the public thing all at once. How about that? And you can come with others as well. And we're just going to have a moment of declaration and a moment of prayer. The ushers are not going to come and take the offering or receive anything. This is a sacred moment. But I invite you to stand to worship. And if you want to publicly declare Jesus is your Lord and you've never had that opportunity, come and let's sing together from the